I've entitled the message this morning, A Line in the Sand, and I'll be explaining that as we uh, talk about this text. It's a, it's a very interesting text. I think it's one that you'll find profitable. I've prayed about this a lot, as I do for all the messages that the Lord lets me give. And, uh, and I'm praying this morning that God is going to bless you, encourage you, inspire you, and uh, help you to rise up to the place that, uh, that he's called you to and the victory that he wants for you. So let's read the text this morning, and we're going to read from Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, and ordered the men to be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, 
you will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Father, thank you for the honor to gather in your name this morning and to study your word. And Lord, I thank you for this particular text. And God, I'm asking that you would fill my heart and my mouth and my mind with your words and your, your thoughts, Lord, that I might communicate accurately and properly your heart for your people, for your sons and daughters who you love so deeply and so completely this morning. Father, I need your help. And God, we all need your help to be able to understand and comprehend. Holy Spirit, help us to, uh, by coming alongside and enlightening our minds and opening our eyes, that we might know more thoroughly what the Christian life is all about and the great love that you have for us. And so, Father, have your way. And we want to say thank you in advance because you always answer uh, when we cry out, for understanding. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. The first time that I heard this phrase, a line in the sand, was actually during the Gulf War when, uh, when President Bush Sr. Um, came against Saddam Hussein. Do you remember his words? He was standing and basically saying, we're drawing a line in the sand. And, uh, and in other words, it's a threat. It's a saber rattling, really. And do you remember all the words of Saddam Hussein? You know, we're going to bathe the the, the uh, deserts of this area in the blood of Americans. You remember in all the hyperbole, all the very uh, graphic terms that they would use to try to frighten each other. I remember at that time, I was thinking, wow, this is like, they're, they're, it's going to be like hell on earth. That's what Saddam Hussein was, was saying. And President Bush just calmly said, we've drawn a line in the sand. And we know what that means, don't we? It means if you cross this line in the sand, it's going to be at your own peril. And we don't really know what the origins of that phrase is. Some people think it went all the way back to Rome. Some people think that it uh, has its origins in the 1800s uh, in, in Europe. But nonetheless, this phrase, a line in the sand, I think is very appropriate for this text. And I want to introduce this text this morning briefly by talking about uh, Satan's strategies. One of the things that Satan wants to do is to, is to uh, use psychological warfare. We've talked about this before. Uh, we know that he is basically a defanged enemy. He has been defeated by Christ on the cross, and yet he's very much like Saddam Hussein. And he, and he tells us all these terrible, awful things that he's going to do to us uh, if we cross a, a particular line in the sand. And so Satan regularly is trying to stir up fear in our hearts. It's a fear of what might happen to us if we follow Christ completely. It's a fear of what might happen if we devote ourselves to God, what might happen to our children or to our, our finances or to our marriages or whatever it might be. And Satan, I find, is regularly drawing a line in the sand and says, I would suggest that you not cross this line. And what we have is we have disciples, the apostles, who regularly in this text are told by the enemy through the Sanhedrin, don't cross this line. And the apostles simply go right across the line. And then the Sanhedrin says, well, well don't, don't cross this line. And they go just right across the line. And what I want to share with you this morning is I've given you the, the entirety of my text right here in, in the point I want to make. I've given it to you at the beginning because I want you to consider crossing lines this morning. I want to have you consider uh, the, the 
context of this text, and I want you to be willing to say, God, I trust you. No matter what it is, I will not be intimidated. I will not be thwarted. I will not be put off by the bellowing of Satan, who is a defeated foe. And whatever line that Satan puts in front of us, we need to be willing to cross over. And that's exactly what the apostles do. We find that they, uh, uh, the text begins in verse 12 with the disciples performing all these signs and wonders. We know what signs are for. They're to point to something. And we know what the wonders are in Scripture. They're to, to excite an amazement in the people. But ultimately, all of these signs and wonders have their purpose in authenticating, number one, the deity of Christ, Number two, the authority of the apostles as God's ambassadors. And number three, the veracity or truthfulness or reliability of the gospel. And, uh, and by the way, from Acts chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, this is a direct answer to prayer. Because the last time they were called before the Sanhedrin, what did the apostles do afterwards? They got together and they prayed and said, God, make us bolder, you know, do more. We want you to put out your hand and do more miracles and more wonders that your name might be made great. And so God, you know, he's like, whoa. See, they were told already, don't cross this line. Stop teaching in this name. Stop doing these things. And they simply just crossed right over that line and said, God, give us more. We want more territory. We're not backing off. These guys are bold. Well, there's a couple of interesting things that we have a little bit of a parenthesis between verse uh, 12 and verse 15, because in here we have a little bit more information about the church. It says that in the text that all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, and um, this is a correct uh, translation of the text, but there's some nuances in the Greek that I want to share with you, because the word that they use here that Luke uses is homothumadon. It's a word that we've found before in the text of Acts. It means to be, what's actually a compound word, homo means of like kind, and uh, thumadon means anger or intensity. But when these two words are put together, it means having the same passion, having the same intensity for something. And so we find that these believers have this intensity and passion for worship and gathering together in Solomon's colonnade. And um, it's very interesting, and I didn't discover this until this time I've studied this text this time, but this particular word is used only 11 times in the New Testament, homothumadon, this passionate like-mindedness. Interestingly, of the 11 times, 10 of them are in the book of Acts because it's dealing with the church. The only other time it's mentioned is in the book of Romans chapter 15 where Paul prays for the church and says, may God give you one heart, one mind to bring glory to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so we have this word, this passionate like-mindedness that, that marked the church. And by the way, that's what's to mark the church today too, this passionate like-mindedness to bring glory to God. And so these believers were of one accord with the unity that actually Jesus prayed for in John 17, 23, when he prayed to the Father and said, let them be brought to complete unity, interestingly, so that the world may know that you sent me. So just unity within the church is evangelistic. Now, the response of the unbelievers, again, parenthetical here to this little uh, story that's taking place, is that the unbelievers uh, had this response that was quite interesting. It says that they were afraid of the believers. They were afraid to join company with them, and it means to be associated with or stick to. So why would the unbelievers be afraid? Well, there were certain risks to being associated with this group of people. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, these were, these were Christians who had compromised and lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were struck dead on the spot. 
We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That would kind of thin the ranks of the carnal and compromising, wouldn't it? I mean, would you want to go to church if, if you knew that people were going to get slain? I mean, not in the spirit, but slain if they were compromised in their walk with God? I mean, it was like, I'm not ready this week. I've got to get some things straightened out. I'll go next week, you know? Uh, but there was a fear to join this group because there was the knowledge that God would take care of his church and that God was going to keep his church pure. And so the people were very concerned because, of course, it was a great deterrent to the lukewarm and to the carnal and to the compromising, and it kept many people at bay. But in spite of that, it says in verse 13 that the people, the unbelievers, highly regarded the believers. It means to hold in high esteem, to appreciate, to approve of. And so there was this weird thing going on where the, the unbelievers knew the believers, they'd seen the power of God, they were watching these miracles, they saw the heart of the early church in its birth, they saw all of these things, and they were afraid and at the same time admiring and longing for, I believe. Because the Bible tells us that many of them, despite their fears, continued to join the church. You know, when I think about uh, unbelievers thinking about the church with awe and admiration and esteem, I'm thinking, when was that? Right? Because when I think about unbelievers today and an unbeliever is, you know, we're talking about the church, I don't hear believers, unbelievers saying, you know what, I'm... I'm <sighs> I, am, I admire what's happening at, at your fellowship or in the kingdom of God or in Christendom. I am so amazed at the power of God, but I, I'm afraid. I don't hear that. What I hear is I hear derision for the church oftentimes. And the reason that it, it's really self-inflicted, the church, we've done it to ourselves by carnality and compromise and by self-absorption in our own lives. And so we have diminished this awe and reverence that people have for the work of God, but it was the mark of the early church. And, and I want to encourage us as a fellowship because I believe that God has called us. Well, I can't be responsible for other churches or what's going on anywhere else in the world or whatever. We have a responsibility to pray, but here we are. We're a family of believers that God has called together. And my encouragement to us is that if we live lives that are passionate and, and seeking God with like-mindedness, people are going to notice and people are drawn to it. And so despite the fact that these unbelievers were afraid to join the believers, they were impressed by the believers. The fact is, as the Bible says, they still came in great numbers into the kingdom of God. Now from our study in Acts so far, in uh, chapter 2, verse 41, we found at the day of Pentecost that 3,000 people came to Christ. And then we find in Acts 4.4 4, that the total number of just men that had become believers in a span of just a few days was 5,000. And we talked about the approximating, if you include uh, an equal number of women and maybe one child per family, you're talking about 15,000 people, possibly 20,000 people in a city whose population was about 40 to 50,000 people. So we're talking about the population of Jerusalem being converted in numbers somewhere between one-third to one-half of the entire population had turned to Christ. This wasn't some little small thing happening in a back room somewhere. I mean, this was explosive growth in the church, and it was being noticed by everyone. And um, I just want to mention one thing about this whole drawing factor of the holiness of the church and the purity of the church. 
Listen to what Kay Arthur says. She is a, a well-known Bible, Bible scholar, Bible teacher. She's the one that has taught precept ministries. Many of the women probably in our church are familiar with her, with her Bible studies. They're, they're great. But she says this about this whole issue of carnality in the church. She says, if you do not plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walking in obedience to him, then don't begin for this is what Christianity is all about. It is a change of citizenship, a change of government, a change of allegiance. If you have no intention of letting Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. Isn't that something? Have any, how many of you have ever heard a message that was that pointed that said, you know, if you're not ready to give everything, don't even bother? What I hear more often than not is that what, what little are you willing to give? And God will meet you there. Aren't you, that, that's the message that's preached, isn't it? Whatever little smidgen of your life you're willing to give to God, he'll accept it and he'll, he's willing to work with it. Well, you know, there's some truth to that because we come as we are. We come as sinners, so we don't come perfected. But the Bible teaches that if we are to come to Christ, Jesus said over and over, you've got to give up everything. You've got to die. You've got to completely yield yourself to the lordship of God. And yet we've turned the gospel into well, what are you willing to give? It's like a little negotiating thing. It's like, you know, God wants everything. Okay, but what are you willing to offer? And then, oh, I'll get this. No, okay, counteroffer, counteroffer, counteroffer. And then we get somewhere in the middle and it's just like, by the time we get there, it's, it's compromised Christianity. And then if the church is filled with people like that, then we've got, this, we've got a problem where the unbelieving community looks at the church rather than with fear and awe and admiration and a desire to be a part of it. They look at it and say, I'm looking for something authentic, and I don't see it there. And so these believers are so genuine and like-minded in their passion for God that unbelievers are taking notice, and just by virtue of their like-mindedness and their passion for God, men and women are coming into the kingdom by, by, the, uh, by the thousands. Well, now we're back to verse 15. Verse 12 was about the apostles, these miracles, signs, and wonders. And now verse 15, it says, because of this, many people were bringing their sick into the streets, even to the point that, that uh, they were even trying to get Peter's shadow just to cross over them so that they could be healed. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily prescriptive of how we should heal people. But it's interesting that this happened and that it's mentioned in the text. But what I find interesting about it that's, that's somewhat enlightening is that the word that, that Peter uses here for the shadow falling on them is episkiazo. It means to overshadow. It's only used two other times in the, in the Bible. And both of the times have to do with the presence of God. And one of the other key times is in Luke chapter 1 when episkiazo, the shadow of the Holy Spirit, overshadowed Mary. And she became pregnant. And so it's an, it's an amazing thing, and it, it, it shed some light for me on what happened to Mary, even more so than shed more light on what's going on in this text. Because I'm thinking, okay, somehow, you know, we think of overshadowing, but it, it may mean exactly that, that the presence of the Holy Spirit just hovered over her and passed by, and she was uh, covered in the shadow of the Spirit of God. And he, when he departed, she, uh, of course, you know, had conceived. And so it's, a, it's an amazing thing here that this word is in particular is used, but the result is, is that as people are being healed, the crowds are coming by the thousands from all the uh, vicinity of Jerusalem and the outskirts of the city, bringing in their sick and their lame and the leprous and the, uh, the people who are demon-possessed, and it says amazingly that all of them are healed. You know, we talked about a line in the sand 
Here the disciples, again, they're not just stepping into the territory of the religious leaders, but they're stepping into the territory of Satan himself, and they're taking back captives. They're doing exactly what Jesus said he would do in Isaiah, is that he would, he would preach the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus Christ and set the captives free. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're just, the, Satan draws a line in the sand, and you can't do this. This is impossible. You can't cast out demons. You can't. And they said, we're going to do it anyway. And they stepped over and they took enemy territory. And so the disciples are healing uh, all of these people and the people are blown away. Now, interestingly, interestingly, in verse 17 through 18, we have an account of the response of the religious leaders. It says that they were filled with jealousy or another word would be envy. Now, what would cause them to be so jealous? Well, probably the same things that make us jealous. How about when someone gets noticed instead of us? When someone gets an opportunity that we wanted? When someone's given a promotion that we felt that we deserved? Or someone is given success that we didn't share in? When someone makes a purchase that we can't afford? Or is given credit for a gift? Or given a gift that we would have liked to have received? Or given credit that we felt we deserved? These are all things that, that have a tendency to excite jealousy in a person's heart. So... You'd think the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, would have been absolutely delighted that God's power was falling on Jerusalem and that something dynamic was happening. But they weren't because it wasn't their show. And because it wasn't their show and their doing, they were jealous. Proverbs 14.30 says that a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And we see a really good illustration of it right here in this text is envy and jealousy is rotting the bones of the Pharisee. It's bringing rotten fruit. It's poisoning their very inward self because they couldn't rejoice with what God was doing. Instead, they arrested and jailed the apostles. We know that they were in jail at least for a night. They were gonna be tried the next morning. So that very night, God did something quite amazing is he sent an angel, and that angel came in the night and delivered them. Now, buried in the text here is something that really reflects the humor, tongue-in-cheek, capacity and character of God. God enjoys himself. I don't know if you know that. I know that some people think that Christianity don't have any fun, don't laugh, don't enjoy yourself, you know, but I think God really loves us to enjoy ourselves. I love laughing. I love to have a good time. And I think God does too. And even in the text, in this particular text, there's something funny in here that, uh, that you know, uh, just a cursory reading wouldn't pick up, but let me share it with you. There are two theological teachings that distinguish the Sadducees, who were the predominant leaders of the Sanhedrin. Number one, they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why they were so opposed to the disciples teaching it. But the second thing is they didn't believe in angels. And so here we have God using a being that they denied existed so that the disciples could preach a gospel that they rejected. And so it's in this text, but you don't see it on face value. And so he sends an angel. You know, later, he's just going to have an earthquake. There are other things that are going to happen. But he just did this to tweak them, you know, to get their attention, to, to try to show them, hey, I, I'm in charge. And there are angels, and this gospel is true. And so these angels, this angel is sent, and he opens the jail doors and lets these apostles out. Now, one thing I want to mention here is... We often overlook this text and we think that maybe it was just Peter and John, but all 11 apostles, Judas was already dead, but all 11 apostles had been arrested. All 11 were imprisoned. 
And this angel in the night comes and delivers them. We don't know exactly how, but obviously the doors were opened and, and they got out, but there was a blindness or an ignorance or a, something happened to the guards where they were unable to see what was going on because they absolutely believed with all of their heart that those guys were still in jail when the captain came to get them the next morning, but they weren't there. And so this angel delivered them. And I, I just want to mention briefly something about angels because they have a very strategic role even today in your life. The Bible tells us in Matthew 18.10 that angels are assigned to every believer. So you actually have angels that are watching over you and protecting you. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I just think about that. I'm like, wow, you know, there's somewhere in here, you know, but they're watching over me, watching over our kids. The second thing that we know about angels is that they minister to us and they serve us, Hebrews 1.14. They encamp around us and guard us, Psalm 34.7 and Psalm 91.11. And they fight for us, 2 Kings chapter 6. 15 through 17, and in this case, they delivered the disciples. I want to kind of stop here for a minute and talk about this whole deliverance because there's a, an application for us. Because here are the 11 imprisoned, and they know they're going to be tried. They know they're being called in the second time. They, they know that there's going to be a death sentence on their head, and they're, they're thinking, God, whatever you want. You know, I'm sure they're saying, Lord, uh, you know, you can deliver us or, or we're going to be delivered by death. Either way, we win. But they have no idea what's going to happen. You know, we, we read this text thinking, well, we already know the end of the story, but they didn't know the end of the story. And so they're there in jail, not knowing what's going to happen. And they're praying, and I believe the church, the 5,000, 15,000 people outside the church are fervently praying for God's deliverance. I share this with you because there are so many times in my own life where I'm thinking to myself, how is God going to get me out of this? Have you ever been like that? Some of you are today like that. You know, you're thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to be delivered. I don't know what could possibly happen to rescue me from this situation. And sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, something we've done to ourselves. It might be an addiction. It might be bitterness or unforgiveness or a bad marriage. It might be all, all kinds of things. And you're thinking to yourself, there's just no way. I just can't see any human way of getting out behind, from behind these bars that are in my life right now. Or it might be something that's outside of your control completely, like, for instance, a physical illness of some sort, or, or something spiritual happening in your life where there's just a dryness in your life and you can't figure out how to get out from behind the bars of, uh, of you know, kind of a, just a, a dry time in your spiritual life. What I want to share with you is that God's power to deliver is uninhibited by anything that the enemy can do. This is, the, this is the wonderful thing about God. You know, Satan just keeps drawing lines and he just gets delight of, you know, stepping over the line himself or sending his sons and daughters over that line. So you may have something happening in your life, but I want to encourage you, if you will cry out to God, God has the power to deliver. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever challenges that you've got that seem impossible, seems like you've got a death sentence in your life, that, that everything's going bad, what I can tell you is that that's the situation the disciples were in. And it is so easy for God to deliver because, of course, nothing is impossible with God. But once the disciples were delivered, the apostles were delivered, the, the, uh, the angel instructs them very carefully and he says, I want you to go stand in the temple and I want you to tell the full message of this new life. I love the way that he puts that. Tell the full message. Don't adapt it. Don't take out the part about the angel delivering you for fear that the Sadducees are going to get bent out of shape. Don't leave anything out. I want the full message 
and I want you to tell it in the temple courts, and I want you to talk about new life. And that's exactly what the Christian life is. It's a new life. In other words, he's telling them, go do it, the very same thing that got you in trouble in the first place. Do it again. I want you to step over the line. I don't want you to be intimidated. I want you to call the enemy's bluff. And so the disciples obeyed the, the angel's instructions. In fact, they went to the most public place they could, the temple, as soon as they could. It says at the break of dawn. That's when the temple doors opened. They couldn't get in before that, but they were sitting. It was like, it reminds me, I'm thinking in my mind's eye of, of like Black Friday, you know, after Thanksgiving and, and the apostles. They're camped out in front of the temple so that they can be there as early as they can. Now that, that I, I think about that and I'm thinking, this is just stepping over the line, isn't it? I mean, isn't this, this is aggressive stepping over the line. It's not like they came late and thought, well, we don't want to get there too early. We don't want to make a scene. We don't want to be there. We'd like to get a crowd there first. Let the crowd show up and then we'll kind of infiltrate. No, they were like waiting for the people to come. They stepped over the line aggressively and boldly and they called the bluff of the Sanhedrin and ultimately the bluff of the enemy obeying the instructions of God through this angel. There's a great quote by Thomas Akempis who said, that instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So this is exactly what the disciples did, is that they simply immediately obeyed God. It reminds me of Psalm 119.32, a, a favorite verse of mine. It says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. So here are these apostles set free by God, and now they're running in the path of his commands. And by the way, if you've been forgiven of your sins, if you've received Christ, you have been set free. And the normal response, the proper response, the biblical response for those of us that have been set free is to run, not to drag our feet, not to dig our heels in, not to come kicking and screaming into obedience, but to run in the path of God's commands. And that's what the apostles did. Well, we get back to the Sanhedrin who don't even know that the apostles are preaching at all. They think they're still in prison. In verse 20, uh, 22 through 28, we find that the Sanhedrin had gathered together intending to try the apostles for this crime of preaching the gospel and they discovered that they were missing. So imagine the Sanhedrin, it's made up of 120 spiritual leaders of Israel and they gather, they've got their long flowing robes, they're very indignant, they're very hypocritical, they're very um, uh, powerful people and they're not used to being jerked around. They're not used to, to not having their way. And all of a sudden, they are informed by the temple guard that these guys have completely vaporized. They've just disappeared. The guards are still standing outside. We don't know what happened to them. And while the guard was communicating this, he says, by the way, they're not only not there, but they're back in the temple preaching again. Does it, is this over the line? Are you, are you following me? Do you see how humorous this is in the text? How God just keeps having them step over and violate this line over and over and over? You know, I, I, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking how often we've been intimidated by Satan. And we're like, well, he said not to step over that line. So, well, I, no reason to get him upset, right? And yet the disciples, the apostles, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the instruction of God the Father through this angel, just keep violating that line and violating that line and violating that line. Well, it's going to get worse or better, depending on your view. 
They brought them before the Sanhedrin again, and they said, we gave you orders. This is the high priest talking. We gave you orders not to teach in this name, and now you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. And I think, what better testimony than to have your enemy proclaim your effectiveness in carrying out the commission that Jesus Christ gave in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Do you remember what he said in Acts 1.8? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in a few short days, weeks, whatever it was, they had already completed the first segment of this mission. By confession of the high priest's mouth, they had already filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus Christ. And then he said, you've also determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Well, they were guilty. They'd had a very significant role in the crucifixion of Christ. And Peter has pulled no punches. He's listened to these line-stepping violations that Peter just, he commits over and over and over against the lines that the Pharisees and the Sadducees draw on the sand. In Acts 2.23, he says, you put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Acts 2.36, you crucified him. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life. Acts 4.10, you crucified the Savior. Wow. That doesn't sound very intimidated to me, does it to you? I mean, he's just romping on these guys. Well, we know that the, um, from the confession of the Sanhedrin's own mouth in Matthew 27, when Pilate had misgivings about putting Jesus to death, they said, let us be responsible His blood be upon us and on our children. And so they were guilty. They were guilty. Well, the apostles' response that all of these threats and these lines in the sand that were being drawn by the Sanhedrin repeatedly is that they, again, proclaimed their loyalty to God. The the Sanhedrin said, you have violated our, our wishes. We have told you what we want you to do and what we don't want you to do. You have stepped over it and we want you to stop. And it says collectively, I don't know how they did it. I'm thinking in my mind that maybe they sang it together. Maybe they had a little song that they developed in prison that night and says, you know, we must obey God rather than men. I can hear a chorus going, you know, I can hear these guys, but it says all of them, the apostles said, we must, it doesn't say Peter, it said the apostles said together that we must obey God rather than men. And so collectively, I can just see these 11 guys standing in front of them. I, I, I can just see them all stepping forward together, <laughs> just symbolically, we're crossing the line. And we must obey God rather than men. Trust me, these Sanhedrin were not accustomed to this kind of abuse and this level of disrespect. And so they said that we will do exactly what God has told us to do and we must obey God rather than men. And they went on, if that wasn't enough, they preached the gospel again right in front of the Sanhedrin. I mean, this is just like, this isn't stepping over the line, this is marching forward. Are you following me? These guys have, you know, it... Stepping over the line maybe happens once or twice, but when you step over the line over and over and over, that looks like marching to me, doesn't it to you? These guys aren't just stepping forward, they're marching forward with the gospel. And so Peter preaches the gospel again to the, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, and it says in verse 33 that the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, they were furious, and they wanted to put him to death on the spot. They wanted to kill him right then. It was like, that's it! The word that... Dr. Luke uses, it means to cut to the heart. And in its literal form, it means to saw in half. That, that's what furious means. They, their hearts were sawn in half by this message. Isn't that what 
the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12 happens with the word of God. It's living and active and powerful and it cuts and it divides even to the innermost part of a man or a woman's heart. And it exposes the thoughts and intents or attitudes of the heart. And so here they're preaching the gospel. They're, they're not just timidly kind of crossing the line and seeing what's out there. They are marching forward and the Sanhedrin is just blown away. They don't even know what to say, but they're just furious. They have been cut to the heart. The thing is, is that that's what the gospel does. It's meant to cut to the heart. It's meant to expose. It's meant to convict. And whenever a person hears the gospel, they've got one of two choices. And I'm not talking about the gospel that says, you know, what little bit are you willing to give to God? You know, maybe we can negotiate something. But when the gospel is really preached, there's going to be one of two responses. There's going to be a cutting to the heart that leads to a furious anger, or there's going to be a cutting to the heart that leads to a repentance from sin. That's what the Bible does. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ accomplishes. Well, they were ready to kill these apostles, but a man named Gamaliel stood up. Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel, who was one of Israel's greatest teachers. Gamaliel was the teacher, the mentor of Saul of Tarsus, who would later become known as Paul, the apostle. Gamaliel was honored by all the people. He was a man that, that had respect within the Sanhedrin. But here we find a Pharisee or a Sadducee in this case stepping over the line as well because he had 119 guys that were furious, that were out of control, that wanted to kill. And he steps up and says, wait a second, I think you're doing the wrong thing. I think we're about to make a tragic mistake. And it wasn't because he was a believer. We have no evidence that Gamaliel ever came to Christ. He was just being simply logical and strategic. And he begins to mention a couple of guys, uh, Theodos and Judas, who had, we have very little information about these guys, but evidently they stirred up some, some sort of a religious revolt. And Gamaliel's whole contention is simply, if you kill these guys, you're creating martyrs. And this thing is just never going to die. But if you let these guys alone, and this is of human origin, in other words, these guys are just kind of, you know, wanting to be somebody, it's going to die. And then everybody's going to watch these guys fade off into oblivion, and we'll all just kind of remember it as a silly experience that we all saw and some were a part of. And the same thing with Gamaliel. He said, my counsel to you is leave these men alone. In fact, I would let them go and let this thing burn out of its own weight. But he said, however, if this is from God, you may find yourself fighting and opposing God himself. As I thought about this, I thought, wow, you know, this has got some real clear application for, for me, for us as Christians. And, and it's simply this. is God has laid out in his word what kind of men and women he wants us to be. He's told us how we can follow him. He's given us clear instruction on how he wants us to conduct our lives, how he wants us to live, the things that he wants us to be passionate about, the things that he wants us to give ourselves to. And if you're like me, there have been times in my life where I've said, well, I really like that and I like that, but I'm not going on that one. I'm not ready to do that. I've got this kind of a compromise negotiating style with God sometimes where I'm trying to work things out based on what I want. And when I'm doing that, I'm not thinking this way, but I'm actually opposing God. I'm standing against God and I'm saying, I am in opposition to your plan for my life in this particular area and I'm not going there. You know, it's interesting that the enemy lays out these lines in the sand all the time. We see it. 
trying to discourage us from moving forward. But God also lays lines in the sand and he says, come across, take the step. We find that in Joshua when Joshua was talking to the people of Israel and he said, you know, I don't know what you want to do, but you need to make a decision who you want to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And he essentially drew a line in the sand and he says, those of you that want to serve the Lord cross over. And I think God is drawing a line in the sand today too. And he's saying, I want you to come over the line. I want you to cross over the line. And when I dig in my heels and I'm only willing to obey God in certain areas, the ones that I agree with, the ones that come naturally or more easily to me, and not in those areas that are so difficult that they almost feel physical, they're so painful to, to approach. When I'm not willing to do that, I'm, I could find myself actually opposing God. So I'm just thinking to myself, hey, I just kind of want to preserve my situation and do what I'm doing and, and uh, I don't want to get things ruffled too much here. And so I'm just kind of, I'm not opposing God. I'm just kind of not ready to obey. But when we're not ready to obey, we're actually in opposition to God. And so Gamaliel, who's not even a believer, has the wisdom to say, let's not find ourselves in that position. And that's what I would encourage us today to. Let's not find ourselves in any area of our life opposing God. Boy, that's just something you don't want to do. You don't want to find yourself in opposition to the purposes of God for two reasons. One is that God's plan for you is so wonderful and so incredible that you don't want to miss out on it. But secondly, God has a way of getting people's attention. I was talking to a guy, a brother, a few days ago, and I, and I said, how are you doing? And he says, well, I'm struggling. And, uh, and I said, wow. I said, you know, because we've talked about it and I pray for him about the things that he struggles with. And he says, I guess it's going to take something really bad to happen before I'll turn around. And I thought, I told him right there on the spot, I said, are you serious? Why would you do that? If you know that's going to come, because God does get our attention, he allows things to come into our lives to, to kind of knock us on the head when we oppose him. God will not allow you indefinitely to oppose him without his effort to try to bring around a transformation in you. And uh, so he is going to knock. And some, at first it's a little knock, a little, and then it's, a, then it's a knock, and then it's a thump, and then it's a whack, and you know, it goes on from there. God has a way of getting our attention. And, and so for two reasons, we don't want to oppose God. Number one, because we're missing out on so much on the power, on the miraculous capacity of God to turn our, our simple little lives into something miraculous and vibrant and wonderful. And also because why would we want to expose ourselves to the discipline of the Lord unnecessarily when we already know that he's going to get us there anyway? Why not just release ourselves. Let's cross the line that the Lord lays out when he says, anyone that follows me has to be willing to follow with all of his heart, to die to self, to give up everything. No one who is unwilling to give up everything can't be my disciple. And so Jesus lays these lines in the sand all the time to define what a true Christian is. And it's someone that gives himself thoroughly and completely to the work of God. Well, fortunately, in the text, these guys were persuaded by Gamaliel's speech, and they had the disciples or the apostles flogged. Now, we go over this text, and I've read this many times, and I have kind of skipped by this section that these guys were flogged. But the word that's used is the same word that's used when Jesus was flogged. It's the same word that was used when Paul was flogged. Jewish history tells us exactly what this involves. A person would have two, two poles on one side or the other, their arms would be pulled out, leather thongs tying their arms, their shirt would be removed. A uh, big burly guy with a whip would come out and he would strike this person repeatedly. In fact, if they didn't strike with their full might, 
I mean, we're not talking about whack, 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 whack. We're talking about whack. And the guy kind of recovers a little bit. And then whack. We're talking about determined effort because if that person doing the flogging didn't give what others watching perceived to be his full effort, he would be flogged. One third of those floggings would take place on the front side of the person's chest. And the last two-thirds were on the back. Now, this is mentioned so briefly, but the reality is, is that I can't imagine that the Sanhedrin, knowing that they're trying to intimidate, wouldn't have lined up all 11 and let them watch one by one as each of them were flogged publicly. These guys are flogged. Flogging rips skin, it leaves welts, it creates blood. In fact, the reason that they went with 39 stripes or 39 floggings was because they believed 40 would kill. So we have to put this all in perspective of what these apostles went through. They didn't just get released and sent off on their way and it was like, <laughs> you know, like a God delivered us again. These guys were a bloody pulp, a bloody mess. They were one stripe from within death and they all survived. And this is the amazing thing. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, verse 41, because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. It means that they were deemed worthy. They found it a great privilege that God, out of all the people on the face of the earth, this is what it means in the Greek, out of all the people on the face of the earth, these guys had been specially selected for the honor of suffering for Jesus' name. That was their attitude. Why would they, why would they rejoice? Well, there's some other reasons as well. Number one, it's commendable before God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. Number two, it's an expected consequence of following Christ. Jesus told him, this is going to happen. This is just a part of what it means to be a vibrant, passionate believer. Number three, it produces great joy both now and in the future, 1 Peter 4.13. It's evidence that the spirit of glory and of God rests on a person, 1 Peter 4.13. It results in the blessing of God, Mark 5.11. It puts you in the company of the prophets, Mark 5.12. And it results in an exceeding great reward in heaven. Mark 5.12. So these disciples had a perspective that, man, we just can't, we can't lose. To, to step over the line repeatedly. These guys, like I said, aren't just stepping over. They're marching. They are now in a cadence. And they marched right through the gauntlet of flogging. And they came right out the other side by the power of God. They had no idea whether they'd come out at all. But they came out. And they came out rejoicing. And I love the last verse, verse 42. Day after day, they never stopped preaching, teaching, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And they did it in the temple courts, which is the only place so far that we have them preaching. But they, they step over the line again. Because now it says they go house to house as well. So they are just infiltrating this entire city. They are a movement. They are a, a regiment of men and women who are forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. I don't know about you. Maybe this is a guy thing, but I get inspired by this. I know women aren't really too inspired by military feats of heroism or anything like that. But as a guy, I'm like, I want to I march. I want to move forward. I want to advance the kingdom of God. I don't want to timidly put my toe out where there's a line drawn in the sand by the enemy. And when there is one drawn by Christ, I want to go right over the top of it into his arms. I want to trust him. I want to live a miraculous life. I want to live in the dimension of the power of God. I don't want to be a bored Christian. 
I don't want to simply you know, step out and walk out my life. I want to march and advance the purposes of God. I want it to happen in my own life. And I'm so, I've got so much that God needs to do in me. I'm aware of that. You guys know even more than I do that I, that I need that. But I know that there's a need for me to keep marching forward. I need to march against the, the, the bellowing of the enemy when he draws a line in the sand and says, you can't do that. You're not good enough to experience that. You'll never have that. That's not going to happen. Forget it. You know, and I've got all these things. Some of you have things that happened when you were in second and third and fourth grade and sixth grade. People said things to you that still dominate your life. And every time you come up to a situation that's similar, you, you, you step back in fear because the enemy drew a line in the sand so many years ago that you're still afraid to cross. And what I want to encourage you is when it comes to the enemy, I'm encouraging you this morning. Step over the line. Call his bluff. He's powerless ultimately before God. And God will protect you. God will watch over you. Step over the line. And then when it comes to Christ, I believe even in the church today, because the church is so compromised, and when I say the church, I mean the church at large, the church in general, is so compromised, so carnal. They've negotiated, negotiated, negotiated to the point that unbelievers don't even respect the church. They have no respect for the church, and probably rightly so. And I want to encourage you to step over into what God calls genuine discipleship. A life devoted to him, a life of repentance, a life of passion, a life of absolute immediate obedience, a life that brings glory and honor to God the Father. That is what God is desiring for us and that is where the abundant life is found. A Christian will never experience it if they're in the wasteland of negotiation with God. So if you want to experience the abundant life, God is inviting you and he's saying, just step over the line. Yield yourself completely to me. You know what that line is. Things that need to be done, things that need to be taken care of, things that you have failed to walk in. God says, today, make a decision and step over the line. Father, we thank you for this time in the word and uh, I thank you for this text. It's inspiring to me to see these guys not be intimidated not be put off by the most powerful gathering of men in their culture on the planet. And they weren't disrespectful, but they weren't intimidated either. They taught the truth. They preached the gospel. They acknowledged your existence. And they testified that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who came to forgive sins through his death on the cross. I pray for us today because I believe most of us here are believers, God, that you would give us a heart to, to call Satan's bluff in those areas that we've been intimidated for years, afraid, well, we can't speak, we can't witness, we can't uh, uh, teach a Bible study, we can't do this, we can't do that. Uh, God, I pray that you would remove any sense of intimidation and that we would boldly uh, go where we've not gone before. And I pray as well that Jesus, as you invite us today into greater intimacy, and greater devotion, and that like-minded passion, that homothumadon of the New Testament church, that our heart would, would not only leap at the chance, but we would run in the path of your commands this morning, that we might enjoy the full benefit of all that you have planned for us. God, so much that you have waiting for us, and you're inviting us across and saying, come in, not just into the kingdom, but step in to the abundant life that I've planned for you. God, give us hearts that respond that way this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.